to Lyndon Lopate at large. I'm Lyndon Lopate. In his latest book, Chad L. Williams details the failed efforts over many decades by William Edward Burkhardt Du Bois to research, write, and publish a comprehensive history of African-American participation in World War I. Chad Williams' book, The Wounded World, W.E.B. Du Bois and the First World War, is published by Farris Strauss and Giroux, and it brings Mr. Williams, a professor of African and African-American studies at Brandeis, to our show now. Welcome. Welcome. Thank you for having me on. The title of Du Bois' book was The Black Man and the Wounded World. You worked on your book from his 800-page manuscript that comprised of 21 chapters. It would have been a monumental book um, and, and even rival his uh, Black Reconstruction as his most ambitious work of history. Why wasn't it published? A million-dollar question right off the bat. So Du Bois was committed to writing, researching, and trying to publish The Black Man and the Wounded World, as you said, for more than two decades. And during this time, he was wrestling with the very complicated personal as well as historical and political legacies of World War I. And ultimately, his disillusionment with World War I, its failure, was the principal reason why he wasn't able to finish his book. World War I proved to be a subject matter that was too big, too frustrating, and ultimately too tragic for even the great W.B. Du Bois uh, to write about. Now, you were able to draw from his research chapter outlines and excerpts of his writing, but didn't he begin it as a narrow history? How did it wind up going to 800 pages? Du Bois initially envisioned the book as being a celebration um, of the service and sacrifice and heroism of African-American troops very narrowly. But as the war unfolded in his mind, as his legacies continued to unfold throughout the interwar period during the 1920s and 30s, he began to think of the project on a much broader scale. And ultimately, he wanted his book to be a lesson about the horrors of, of modern warfare. So a book that started out very small ultimately became a book that he imagined would be extremely big. And he even expanded it to the war's origins in the European colonization of Africa? Absolutely. Du Bois was incredibly prescient. Uh, in As early as 1915, he was arguing that the origins of the war lay in the imperial competition amongst the European belligerents for control of Africa and its resources, both human as well as material. So he envisioned his history as a global history uh, in every sense, um, but one that was particularly focused on the African diaspora and peoples of African descent, the role that they played in the war, but also how the origins of the war uh, were rooted in European imperialism and colonization in Africa and beyond. And you say that he saw it as an explanation of his own role in encouraging black Americans to close ranks and set aside personal grievances in support of the war effort? So in the July 1918 issue of the Crisis magazine, the which, which is one of the, the things that he created along with the NAACP. Yes, yes. He was editor of the Crisis magazine. This was his pride and joy. 
And in this incredibly controversial article, editorial that he wrote in the July 1918 crisis, titled Close Ranks, he encouraged African-Americans to temporarily put aside their special grievances, referring to lynching, Jim Crow, economic exploitation, all the challenges that African-Americans faced, put those to the side for the time being and wholeheartedly support their country, their fellow white Americans and the allies that were fighting for democracy. This was one of the most controversial editorials of his career and his harshest critics labeled Du Bois a traitor to the race for making this argument. And that stuck with Du Bois, that criticism stuck with him really throughout his entire life. And he used the writing of the history of the war as a way to make sense of his decision and ultimately to try and find some type of atonement for this decision that he made. Another controversial decision was he had supported Woodrow Wilson during the four-way election of 1912, and he even withdrew from the Socialist Party to support him. Yes, he did. Uh, He believed that Woodrow Wilson, um, educated, um, erudite, uh, not a rabid white supremacist like most Southerners would be different. Um, And he encouraged African-Americans in 1912 to uh, vote for for Wilson um, to abandon their longtime allegiances to the Republican Party and take the leap of faith supporting Wilson. And Du Bois was was tragically wrong uh, mm-hmm. in that decision, um, which he came to regret. Uh, he would ultimately view Wilson as uh, one of the worst presidents in his lifetime when it came uh, to civil rights uh, and uh, protecting uh, the uh, humanity of black people. But interestingly enough, uh, Du Bois and Wilson were linked uh, in ways which kind of speaks to their shared belief in in democracy as as an ideal, definitely from different perspectives, uh, but still viewing the war and its democratic uh, potential as a pivotal moment in American history and and world history. Actually, didn't Wilson reverse things? Uh, He not only failed to address Jim Crow disenfranchisement, He famously screened Birth of a Nation at the White House in 1915, and his administration segregated the federal government. Uh, Did that include segregating the civil service? That did include segregating the civil service. Uh, Woodrow Wilson was a Southern progressive, and Southern progressives believed that Jim Crow segregation was the ideal solution to addressing what was at the time called the race problem or the race question. Had had Roosevelt been moving in another direction at that point? Uh, Roosevelt was was also a segregationist, uh, not necessarily as as rabid um, and committed uh, as Woodrow Wilson was. um, But uh, Roosevelt uh, very quickly learned, um, especially um, after the controversy erupted when he invited Booker T. Washington to the White House, that it was best to leave Southerners to deal with the Negro question on their own, which included uh, leaving segregation and Jim Crow firmly in place. Well, Wilson did finally speak out against lynching. Can we give him credit for that? He did. And I suppose we can give him a little bit of credit for that. uh, But it was a rather guarded statement. He actually made no mention specifically of African-Americans um, and he was pressured into doing so uh, by uh, the War Department and military intelligence officials. 
So while at the time it was uh, seen as an important statement, it actually did very little to stem the tide of racial violence in the country, especially immediately after the war. Um, As I write about in the book, the Red Summer of 1919, when African-Americans were subjected to race riots and massacres all over the country, Woodrow Wilson uh, literally did nothing. There was a race riot in Washington, D.C., and African-Americans were being attacked and killed directly in front of the White House while Woodrow Wilson was inside. Was Du Bois something of an anomaly? He was born in Great Barrington, Massachusetts, grew up in a relatively tolerant and integrated community. And then after he completed graduate work, uh, uh, I mean, he went to uh, Frederick Wilhelm University in Berlin, Germany, as well as to Harvard. So he was the first African-American to earn a doctorate. Uh, first African-American to earn a doctorate from, from Harvard University. Yeah. Du Bois was, was absolutely singular um, in his, his upbringing, his educational background, uh, his, his intellect. Uh, he was really one of the most remarkable individuals in 20th century American history, uh, regardless um, of race. And was um, he regarded as such at the time? He was... It was very complex. Uh, And over the long lifetime uh, that he lived, 95 years, uh, he attracted loyal supporters as well as fierce enemies. Um, Most white people at the time did not support W.B. Du Bois. Uh, Certainly, um, there was a segment of the white progressive uh, community who did. But most white Americans viewed Du Bois as as a radical, as as bitter, as a troublemaker. Um, And that certainly uh, was the sentiment uh, in the later years of his life as his politics move further to the left. So I think it's only relatively recently that we're recognizing just what a remarkable individual Du Bois was and his importance to uh, American history. Well, he already was well known at the time. In 1903, he published The Souls of Black Folk. Uh, didn't he argue in that book that black people must have two fields of vision at all times? They must be conscious of how they viewed themselves and how the world viewed them. Souls of Black Folk is, without question, Du Bois's most famous book. It's arguably the most important book in African-American letters. It's truly timeless. And uh, in that book, he articulated his uh, famous theory, uh, formulation of double consciousness, mm. uh, the sense of being black on the one hand and being American on the other, and the tension uh, that came along with that. Um, these two unreconciled strivings, uh, as he uh, described them, uh, in one dark body. Um, and the war, as I write about in my book, was an opportunity for Du Bois to try and put that theory into practice, uh, to try and see if it was indeed possible for black people to be both American and um, and a Negro um, at the same time, uh, to be loyal Americans uh, and not have their patriotism uh, questioned. Uh, this was something that he firmly believed in. And very tragically, as uh, the war unfolded and as the aftermath of the war Unfolded, uh, he realized uh, that that tension still remained. Did he uh, have a change of heart uh, late, very late in his life when 
he advocated a form of segregation, although not the, the kind of segregation that white segregationists were, were calling for? Du Bois lived a very long life, and his, his views evolved over time. Uh, so by the 1930s, in the midst of the Great Depression, as African-Americans were thinking about different approaches to addressing specifically their economic conditions, uh, Du Bois did, in fact, advocate for segregation, uh, for economic, economic cooperatives, for African-Americans to pool their resources. Um, and at the time, he made the argument that African-Americans had always practiced various forms of self-segregation uh, and, in fact, advocated segregation. One of the examples that he pointed to, as I discussed in the book, was the creation of an all-Black officers training camp uh, in 1917, uh, which was organized by the War Department in Fort Des Moines, um, Iowa. Uh, so Du Bois always saw uh, segregation as, on the one hand, being forced upon Black people, but under certain circumstances, something that they could potentially uh, embrace as a form of racial solidarity, um, uplift, and, and empowerment. Because in an integrated situation, they often were not allowed to rise as high as somebody of uh, equal ability who is white. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and he believed that it was important for African-Americans, even in the context of segregation, to demonstrate their abilities and their their genius. Um, and that was something that he uh, firmly believed in, especially uh, when it came uh, to education, um, historically black colleges like this university where he received his undergraduate uh, degree, uh, as well as a whole host of different uh, institutions uh, in which African-Americans were able to uh, to excel. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large is Chad L. Williams, whose latest book is The Wounded World, W.E.B. Du Bois and the First World War, published by Farris Strauss and Giroux. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. Now, he was the found, one of the founders of the NAACP in 1909. Um, what led to that happening? Du Bois initially was committed to the social scientific addressing of what at the time was called uh, the race problem or the race question. And he came to the conclusion that it wasn't enough for African-Americans and himself uh, to just approach the challenges that they faced from a purely academic or, or intellectual perspective. Uh, so he made the decision to join um, in the founding of the NAACP in 19, uh, 1909 as uh, really one of the first uh, national civil rights organizations marking his uh, commitment to combining his scholarship, his intellectualism with uh, political advocacy, recognizing that his voice had to go beyond just the ivory tower, so to speak. And you pointed out that he was uh, one of the founders and the editor of the Crisis magazine. Interestingly, that magazine is still with us. It is. Uh, the NAACP is still in existence today, uh, going strong, and its magazines still exist. Uh, and uh, the legacy that Du Bois uh, laid for that magazine, for the NAACP, as well as for uh, the civil rights struggle um, as we, we know it today throughout the 20th century 
and into the 21st uh, century is a, a very important part of his legacy. Would we recognize the the uh, ideals of the NAACP in 1909 today, or has the world changed a lot in the interim? We're talking about uh, over a century ago. Sure. Certainly the, the challenges that African-Americans face today are, are different. Um, we do indeed live in different times. There has been considerable progress made, which is important to recognize. Um, but at the same time, I think uh, many of the challenges that Du Bois faced uh, in his life, uh, many of the challenges that I talk about in my book uh, that were part of his reckoning with the history and legacy of World War I, whether it's the um, continued existence of white supremacy, uh, whether it's attacks on the teaching and studying um, of black history, uh, whether it's the continued threat of, of war and violence. All of these issues continue to uh, exist uh, today, um, and they were central to, uh, to Du Bois' uh, intellectualism and his activism. But he saw the war as an opportunity to change some of the, the, uh, the basic problems that were facing uh, what he called black folk? He saw the war as potentially a transformative moment in not just the history of African-Americans in the United States, but the history of democracy on a global scale. Uh, du Bois believed uh, very deeply, as I talk about in the book, uh, that the war uh, would usher in uh, a new era uh, in which African-Americans would be recognized as, as American citizens and peoples of African descent would have uh, greater social, political, and economic rights. Um, and this was part of why he struggled uh, so so mightily uh, to make sense of the history of the war that ultimately became uh, so so disillusioning um, and ultimately proved to to be a failure, certainly as as World War II tragically confirmed. How did he come to view his role in encouraging black Americans to close ranks and set aside personal grievances in support of the war effort? I believe that Du Bois was genuinely conflicted. He was genuinely confused uh, about why he made that decision. And as I talk about in my book, he tried to write the history of the war um, as a way to to make sense of that very controversial decision, to try and find a way to, to justify it, to try and place it in a broader historical context. Uh, and ultimately, he was not successful in doing that. Uh, he came to the conclusion that war, that supporting war under any circumstances uh, was wrong. Um, this was really one of the most uh, difficult and painful decisions that he made in his life, something that he wrestled with really until his, his dying day. Did he hope that his history would be in part a means of ensuring that others didn't make the same mistakes? Certainly. Uh, his approach to writing The Black Man in the Wounded World uh, would, would have been his definitive history of the war evolved over time. Uh, he initially saw it as a way to preserve uh, the history, to defend uh, the legacies of black soldiers um, their contributions to the war. But over the interwar period, he began to see his book as an explicit lesson in the horrors of modern warfare, a warning call, if you will, 
for the world not to make the same mistakes that it made in World War One. And when he decides to eventually stop working on the book, uh, to abandon it, World War Two is upon the world, really confirming for Du Bois the ultimate failure of, of World War One and his failure in supporting it. Was it complete enough to be published as is? I certainly wish it was. <laughs> uh, well, you've of, looked at it all, haven't you? I have looked at 800 it 800 pages? It's really a, a remarkable manuscript. It's a remarkable archive. Um, in addition to the manuscript, I've examined all of Du Bois's research materials related to it and all of the correspondence uh, related to it with black soldiers and veterans, publishers, foundations, um, it's really a, a remarkable archive. Uh, the manuscript itself is uh, incomplete. Some of the chapters are indeed finished. Um, others are still in draft form. He did there, publish one of them, the first chapter, didn't he, in, in the crisis? He did publish the first chapter in, in the crisis in January of 1924. And it's a brilliant analysis of the origins of the war and ultimately the argument that I think he hoped to make uh, in uh, the larger book. Um, it's it's really incredibly tantalizing, and it really makes you wonder just what type of impact uh, this book would have had if he was able to 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 complete it. Um, but the entire manuscript itself is 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 incomplete, um, but still a remarkable glimpse into Du Bois's mind and how he thought about the war over such a long period of time. Had he initially attended attempted to assemble? Uh, a group of uh, black male intelligentsia to work on the project. Um, Emma J. Scott, George Edmund Haynes, Benjamin Brawley, Carter G. Woodson, among others. What happened? Du Bois initially viewed writing his massive uh, history of the war as a collaborative project. This was immediately after the armistice in the wake of the criticism he received for writing closed ranks. So he wanted to bring together all of these leading uh, black intellectuals as a way to demonstrate his continued leadership and his continued uh, relevance in the face of intense uh, criticism. Uh, but egos and competing interests ultimately got in the way of that happening. So the project uh, ultimately became a solo endeavor um, and Du Bois was both literally and figuratively carrying the weight of this project on on his own shoulders um, for for the entirety of the interwar period. Well, you say egos got in the way. Did they gen generally disagree with Du Bois, or was it just a matter of uh, I want my own chapter? Well, in the case of one of his uh, erstwhile collaborators, Emmett J. Scott, uh, he wanted his own book. Hmm. So Du Bois was, was writing at a time uh, immediately after the war when there were several competing projects in the air, uh, including one uh, by, as I mentioned, Emmett J. Scott, uh, who was one of the most uh, influential African-Americans uh, in the government, uh, Booker T. Washington's former uh, secretary. Um, he had plans to write his, his own book and viewed Du Bois as, as the competition. Uh, so he was uh, competing with other uh, black intellectuals for who was going to be the mm. historian of the black experience in the war. And Du Bois, with the massive ego that he had, refused to back down. Uh, 
We are only talking about men. Uh, were women even, uh, and the rights of women even a concern? They certainly were at, at the time. Uh, obviously, the, the 19th Amendment was uh, on the verge of being passed, or we did pass. Uh, the contributions of women and black women specifically uh, to uh, the war effort were incredibly uh, important. Um, but Du Bois uh, was very masculinist uh, in his framing of the war. Uh, he viewed the war as a moment for black men in particular uh, to reclaim uh, their manhood um, and to represent uh, the race. So really one of the blind spots of Du Bois's historical vision and conceptualization of the war is the ways that he omits black women from the history of it. Uh, and he was married to a rather impressive, well, he married a couple of times, but his second wife was a rather well-known woman in her own right. Certainly. Shirley Graham Du Bois, mm -hmm. his second wife, was a intellectual and political force in her own uh, right. Uh, they married later in uh, Du Bois's life uh, in the 1950s, and she was very important, not just in supporting him in his uh, final years, but also shaping uh, his radical politics um, during the later years um, of his life. Uh, Shirley Graham Du Bois was uh, an author. Uh, she was uh, someone who was really at the forefront of many of the uh, black radical movements, um, certainly in the 1950s and 1960s, and um, continuing after uh, Du Bois's uh, death in 1963. Did Du Bois ever express regret for his support of Woodrow Wilson? Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, he expressed regret um, in 1913, <laughs> literally a, a year after uh, Woodrow Wilson was elected as Woodrow Wilson uh, is segregating uh, the federal government and the civil service where he's giving uh, white supremacists um, a platform uh, in Congress to advance a whole host of, of racist uh, measures. Uh, he publicly um, uh, expresses uh, his incredible disappointment uh, with with Woodrow Wilson. Um, and certainly by uh, the 1916 election, uh, he is uh, adamant that no African-American in their right mind should vote for Woodrow Wilson. Well, it's an interesting thing that uh, when you look at politics today uh, and the positions of, of the, uh, the parties on race, um, following w Wilson, the Democratic Party for quite a few years um, had a very strong segregationist group. Uh, the, the the Southern Democrats, that's all yeah. changed. Yeah, certainly the the Democrats at the time uh, were did not have a very good record, <laughs> to put it mildly. When it came, well, Lincoln uh, was a Republican. Uh, Lincoln was uh, was a Republican, um, and that's uh, one of the reasons why um, African Americans uh, were uh, so loyal uh, to uh, the Republican Party. And that shift uh, didn't begin to happen uh, really until uh, the 1928 uh, uh, election. Um, but certainly by, by the 1932 election, you begin to have uh, African-Americans uh, leaving uh, the Republican Party, certainly disillusioned with, with Hoover in the context of uh, the Great Depression, 
beginning to throw their support behind the Democrats and, and FDR. Uh, but certainly prior to that, uh, Democrats' record uh, when it came to, uh, to race, um, you know, was, uh, was not very strong. Did he hope that this history would be in part a means of ensuring that others didn't make the same mistakes? Yes, as I, as I write about in, in the book, uh, as Du Bois's views toward uh, the war evolved over time and as he continued to, to write and think about his, his history of the war, um, he wanted uh, his book uh, to be an explicit lesson uh, in the horrors of, of modern warfare. And he's, he's articulating this in the various applications uh, that he puts forward to different foundations and philanthropies like the Carnegie Endowment, uh, for example. Uh, so certainly by the 1930s and on the eve of World War II, uh, he wants uh, the, uh, the the world to know uh, that uh, war will have tragic uh, consequences, uh, and they need only look to uh, the horrors of World War One uh, to see how that was uh, possible. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. my conversation with Chad L. Williams. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of his book, the book we have been uh, discussing, The Wounded World, W.E.B. Du Bois and the First World War. Just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show, we'll be happy to send you a copy. That's give and the number two, WBAI.org or 212-209-2950. But don't forget to make that $50 donation or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large. And we thank you very much. And return now to Chad L. Williams, who is the Samuel J. and Augustus Spector Professor of History on African and African-American Studies at Brandeis University author of a number of award-winning books, including Torchbearers of Democracy, African-American Soldiers in the World War I Era. Uh, and um, let's get and this book, The Wounded World, W.E.B. Du Bois and the First World War, is published by Farrer, Strauss, and Giroux. Now, um, let's talk a bit about what happened during the war. Um, did uh, Du Bois' belief in the possibility of full citizenship and democratic change if African Americans supported the Allied cause in World War I haunt him for the rest of his life? Du Bois believed that the war would be a, a pivotal moment in the history of American democracy and African American citizenship. He genuinely believed 
that by supporting the war, by encouraging African-Americans to enlist in the armed forces, to risk their lives and to die for their country, as they had in the American Revolution, as they had in the Civil War, as they had in the uh, Spanish-American War, that their citizenship would at last be recognized. And he came to the conclusion that serving in the military uh, and supporting war itself was was not enough. Um, He was uh, incredibly disappointed, disillusioned with the outcome of the war uh, and believed uh, that it was ultimately one of the most uh, tragic moments in uh, world history. Uh, And his support for it uh, indeed haunted him for the rest of his life. He described the ill treatment of black troops in the U.S. Army. Was that based on the way the army was, the military itself was structured? The United States Army was completely segregated during World War I. Uh, there were approximately 380,000 African American soldiers who served in World War I. Were they uh, drafted? It, or the, the vast majority of black troops were drafted. Hmm. Um, there were uh, some African Americans who did volunteer uh, and they served largely in National Guard units, but the majority of African Americans were indeed drafted. The majority served in labor battalions doing the ugly, unglamorous work um, of the war. But there were two black combat uh, divisions. Uh, as I write about in the book, Du Bois saw these black combat divisions and especially the black officers who were a part of these black combat divisions as representing uh, the race. And he wanted his history of the war to be a vindication of their service, as well as an indictment on the segregation and institutionalized uh, racism and white supremacy in the military. Well, there were no black Marines. The Navy enrolled blacks only to serve in the officer's mess. And the Army intended to use black conscripts mostly in labor battalions. So that's right. Um, did Du Bois and the NAACP eventually convince the War Department? Uh, to at least establish a segregated training center for black officers? That's right. When the United States entered the war in April of 1917, Du Bois made the decision that he was going to support the Allied cause. And one of the first um, efforts that he supported um, was the creation of an officer's training camp uh, for black cadets. Uh, He believed uh, that African-American officers the representatives of what he uh, described as the talented 10th, the leaders of the race, needed to have the opportunity uh, to get officer training and to lead other black soldiers uh, into combat. Um, And this was uh, something uh, that he believed in uh, very deeply and uh, something that also continued to motivate him uh, to write his his book. Uh, He kept in touch with many of the men who received uh, officer commissions uh, throughout uh, the post-war and interwar period. Um, And he always thought about what they experienced, uh, the racism and discrimination they Mm. experienced, um, and used that as motivation to try and eventually get his history of the war uh, written and published. Well, what happened when the Black 93rd Division was organized? Was the reaction of white supremacists a concern? White supremacists uh, in the United States and especially in uh, the United States Army 
were deeply fearful of the very idea of black men in combat, uh, the idea of black men carrying guns, uh, being trained in Southern camps uh, was something that struck fear uh, into many uh, white Southerners. Uh, so the organizing of the black combat uh, divisions was very controversial. The 93rd Division, which was composed largely of black National Guardsmen, was actually given to the French military, the French army, because they were dressed the, in French uniforms. Some of them did. They had to give up their their American uniforms uh, for French uh, uniforms, um, and uh, this was really symbolic of how the United States Army uh, didn't know how to use them, didn't want them, um, and how they found a sense of a refuge uh, in uh, in the French uh, military. Had a much better experience than they would have had in the United States uh, uh, Army. Was that um, because the French were deploying African troops themselves uh, on the Western Front? In part because uh, the French uh, had a longer history of uh, familiarity uh, with uh, black uh, troops because, as you mentioned, they had indeed been using uh, African colonial troops um, on the Western Front since the beginning of the war. Uh, black troops from uh, North Africa, um, as well as from, from West Africa uh, as well. Um, but certainly by uh, 1918, as the United States really begins to increase its, its mobilization, uh, the French and the Allies uh, more broadly are, are hungry for any fresh bodies that they can get. So they uh, welcome uh, African-American troops into their ranks with, with open arms. Didn't high-ranking white officers slander black combat troops as worthless and black officers as incompetent. Was that just, was that based on any real activities? One of the most controversial moments of the war that Du Bois writes about extensively, and, and I talk about in my book, was during the Meuse-Argonne Offensive, mm -hmm. uh, the massive Allied offensive uh, in September of 1918, in which uh, African-American troops are a part of. Uh, and one regiment in particular, the 368th Infantry Regiment of the all-black 92nd uh, Division, was accused of, of failing in its combat mission. And the black officers of that regiment took the blame. And white commanding um, officers uh, labeled them as worthless, inefficient, cowardly. And these charges were used to slander the entire service and the entire contributions of African-Americans more broadly. So Du Bois was committed to vindicating their service, uh, to making it clear that they had not failed in their mission and that it was white officers who were in fact to blame uh, for what happened uh, during this, this, this particular uh, mission. Um, and he committed to uh, telling uh, that that history uh, in its uh, truthfulness uh, throughout uh, the interwar period and was going to be a central part of the larger book that he wanted to write. He spent three months in France between December 1918 and March 1919, where, in addition to organizing uh, a pan-African Congress, he met with African-American troops and collected documents for his book. What uh, was the Pan-African Congress? Yeah, so as I write about in the book, and this was really one of the most dramatic moments um, that, that I discuss in the book, Du Bois goes to, to France. Uh, he 
is is there in in France at the same time as Woodrow uh, Wilson is. Um, he believes uh, that the destinies of mankind are centered in France after the armistice during uh, the peace conference, and he wants to use this as an opportunity to advocate for the rights of peoples of African descent throughout the entire African diaspora. Uh, so in February of 1919, he organizes a landmark uh, Pan-African Congress, uh, which lays the foundation not just for future Pan-African Congresses in the 1920s, uh, uh, but ultimately for uh, the Pan-African and uh, independence uh, movements that come to fruition uh, in the 1940s and, and 1950s. When black troops came home, didn't white supremacists uh, engage in uh, mob violence and rioting? Why? Was it just a, an attempt to humiliate the, the, the black troops? Well, as I, as I devoted an entire chapter in, in my book, Americans returned back to the United States expecting their rights. They had fought for democracy. They had given their lives on the battlefields of France for democracy. And now they expected democracy when they returned home. And this was something that white Americans, uh, particularly those um, who were uh, committed to the racial status quo, uh, were not willing to, to relent. So as a result, you have an explosion of racial violence throughout the country. Um, race riots in Washington, D.C., uh, in Chicago, massacres in, in Arkansas, the number of lynchings skyrocketing. You have black veterans returning home in their uniforms being attacked and in many cases uh, lynched. Uh, James Weldon Johnson described this as the red summer of 1919, and it spoke to on the one hand, uh, the, the, the determination of African-Americans to return home fighting for their civil rights, but also the incredible resistance that they faced on the part of, uh, of white Americans. And in his book, Dark Water, which he completed after the armistice and in the midst of that red summer that you mentioned, 1919, Du Bois asked, how great a failure and a failure in what does the world war betoken? He does. Uh, Darkwater is one of Du Bois's most brilliant books, uh, in my opinion. He publishes it in 1920 at the same time where he is thinking about writing the history of the war. And as I argue in the book, Darkwater in some ways is therapeutic for Du Bois. It's a cathartic expression of his, his hopes, but also his, his frustration, his rage that he is experiencing in the immediate aftermath of the war, after returning home from France, of seeing the horrors um, of the Western Front, of hearing the stories from black soldiers about the discrimination and slander that they experienced, returning back to the United States to horrific racial violence. And he's wondering, pondering in dark water, what has the war created? What type of world has the war, has the war created? What type of failure does the war betoken? And I think this question of failure is something that haunts uh, Du Bois uh, throughout uh, his attempts to write the history of the war, something that um, I talk about uh, in the book um, as being in some ways the lesson uh, that we take away 
from Du Bois's ultimately failed attempts to, to, to write its history. So you're saying that some of his insights are as timely today as they were a century ago? I believe that Du Bois is one of the most prophetic figures, prophetic voices that this country has has ever produced. And as many, excuse me, let me interrupt for just a second. I'm sure many people recognize his name and may know a little bit about him, but I suspect they don't know much about him. Uh, And uh, that comes as a surprise considering what an important role he played in our history. I agree, and I think it, it speaks to the controversies surrounding the teaching uh, of African-American history uh, that we are immersed in today, uh, how we don't know um, enough uh, about uh, the really significant figures uh, in, in African-American history and the ways that they have shaped uh, this, this country's history for all the progress that we have made uh, in uh in, in, in spreading uh, knowledge uh, about African-American history, there's still so much that we don't know. And I certainly hope my book will, will be a contribution uh, to exposing more people to Du Bois, uh, what an incredible individual uh, he was, but also an aspect of Du Bois's life um, and, and career and work as it pertains to, to World War I that we're also not very familiar with. When he was 90... Du Bois identified the dichotomy which formed the central thread of his life and thought, um, I'm quoting, how far can love for my oppressed race accord with love for the oppressing country? And when these loyalties diverge, where should my soul find refuge? I suspect uh, that's been a problem for an awful lot of people and not just African-Americans. Absolutely. It's such a, a beautiful statement of, of Du Bois reflecting on, on his life and the, the central challenge, dichotomy, as, as you said, of, of being black and being American. Uh, the, the double consciousness that continued to, um, to exist in, in Du Bois's soul, uh, but something that was uh, something, something that other African-Americans uh, faced at the time and continue to face today. I think one of the takeaways from my book is that many of the issues that Du Bois wrestled with throughout his life uh, in the context of World War One, especially this larger question of how to be a patriot, how to be loyal to to your country when your country is not loyal to you. That's something that African-Americans continue to to grapple with today. Now, he had been a socialist when he was younger, and he returned to, he got more and more leftist over the years. Um, Do you think that that has been a factor in the way he's been judged? Certainly. Uh, Du Bois— I mean, did he blame capitalism for any of the problems he's writing about? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, du Bois was was always very, very critical of, of capitalism. As you mentioned, he was uh, a member of the Socialist Party for a brief time in the early uh, 1900s. Um, but his politics moved further and further to the left, as I talk about in my book, when he visits the Soviet Union uh, in 1926. It's really a transformative moment in his life and his um, ideological um, evolution. 
uh, his his uh, economic views uh, become more radical in the 1930s in the context of of the Great Depression. Um, by the 1950s, um, he is explicitly uh, associating himself with the Communist Party uh, and actually joins the the Communist Party uh, just prior to leaving the United States uh, for Ghana in 1961. So certainly his his leftist affiliations, his association with the Communist Party played an important role in the forgetting of of Du Bois uh, in the 1960s, 1970s, um, and and arguably up until uh, the present. Uh, Historians like myself um, have uh, have have been committed to to trying to reclaim uh, Du Bois's legacy and tell the, the the full totality of his his life story and and contributions. Uh, but certainly his radical politics remain uh, a an important reason why many uh, people don't know about him and why many people still continue to to shy away from him. Well, becoming a communist during the Cold War uh, was. <laughs> It was not was a, a rather divisive thing. Absolutely. Um, but again, it, it speaks to just how remarkable Du Bois was and um, how committed he was to to democracy, um, but also committed to the ideals, the principles of, of freedom of speech, freedom of expression, freedom of political uh, association. Um, he viewed his critique uh, of America really as the highest form of patriotism. Um, and I think that's something that we can take from him uh, today, uh, that viewing uh, America um, in all of its flaws uh, is is something that is indeed, um, can indeed be seen a- as a form of patriotism. Your previous book, Torchbearers of Democracy, African-American Soldiers in the World War I Era, uh, has won awards. Did that lead you into this, working on this book? So when I was conducting research for my dissertation, which would become Torchbearers of Democracy, I was visiting the University of Massachusetts Amherst, where W.B. Du Bois's papers are housed. And this is where I first encountered his manuscript, uh, the Black Man and the Wounded World Manuscript. Uh, scrolling through this microfilm reel that I was given in the archives and being completely astounded, shocked by what I saw, this massive manuscript and this incredible archive that no historian had written about. Even even scholars of, of Du Bois were unfamiliar uh, with, this, with this project and how long he, he worked on it. So I was committed to, to researching uh, this this history and to ultimately telling the story uh, surrounding uh, what would have been one of Du Bois's most uh, important works um, of history. So this book, in some ways, does directly come out of my my research and my writing uh, for my first book, uh, Torchbearers of Democracy. So, what do you think he was uh, trying to tell potential readers by calling the book "The Black Man and the Wounded World"? It's such a, a beautiful title, and that's why I wanted to, <laughs> to use it uh, in, in the title of my own book. But I think Du Bois is asking an incredibly poignant question in, in titling his book that way. What does it mean to live in a wounded world? 
what does it mean to think of the world as as wounded, wounded by war, wounded by violence, wounded by white supremacy, wounded by colonialism and empire, wounded by economic exploitation? What does it mean to live in a world like that? And how do we make sense of that world? And I have to leave it there. Unfortunately, we've run out of time. But sure. thank you so much for being on our show. Chad L. Williams, the book, The Wounded World, W.E.B. Du Bois and the First World War, published by Farris Strauss and Giroux. And that brings us to the end of our show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our over 800 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI because we are going through a rough time right now and money is a serious problem so we're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to wbai.org right now that's give and the number two wbai.org we need your help to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content information you don't get anywhere else and as i mentioned earlier anyone who makes a contribution of fifty dollars or more in the name of leonard lopate at large can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing the wounded world by chad l williams so why not make that call right now 212-209-2950 will go online to w to give to wbai.org and you might also consider uh, becoming a sustaining member of the station what we call a bai buddy for ten dollars fifteen twenty twenty five dollars whatever amount you can consider for per month and it allows us to plan for the future and you can discontinue whenever you want to and we're we'll, we're happy to send a bai tote bag to anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $10 a month or more. But either way, we hope you'll call right now because we rely 100% on listener donations. We're the only station in New York dial that's 100% listener-sponsored. Help keep us alive and thriving with your tax-deductible support. And we thank you for listening and hope you can join us again tomorrow. 